We return with our guest, Michael Gray, to answer the question, solution-oriented directions that should be pursued regarding wealth inequality. From more of a solution-oriented type of perspective, can you speculate based on those empirical observations? What you suspect is going to happen with wealth inequality under the Trump administration presently, as well as solution-oriented ideas? Certainly. Well, first off, you know, $4.5 trillion over the Obama administration. And right now, we're at $3.5 trillion, And we're still waiting on Congress to provide additional monies for people who are, again, not through any fault of their own, either unemployed or furloughed or and are hungry. They're going hungry. They're, they're, they're worried about the, the paying the mortgage, paying the rent. So that's why I, I foresee it probably be, being uh, the, the largest transfer of wealth coming up by the time we get through this pandemic. Now, the Fed, Federal Reserve, made a decision back in the 80s that they would never have runaway inflation like we did in the mid-70s, where the um, Federal Reserve had an 18% under Paul Volcker, 18% Fed funds rate, because inflation was going through the roof. So how do you do that? They still need to, to be able to print money, but if you don't let it get into the hands of the people, you won't get inflation. So you, so you prop up the banks, you put the money in the banks. The banks then either they do not provide loans with that money, but they use it for proprietary trading to prop up their profits. It never gets down to the people. The first time it actually did get down to the people, the banks were writing mortgages for everybody who didn't really qualify for a mortgage. And that's, that's what I, I saw in 2000, you know, the run up to 2008. So the Federal Reserve, again, reiterated the fact that we can't let this money get into the hands of the people because the people will bring down the economy. Not the people. Can, can you explain that? Can you can you can you explain that a little bit more for those of us that are not real economically uh, have a high economic IQ about how allowing the money out into circulation creates an increase in inflation, which then challenges the overall economy. Can you get a, a little more rudimentary in that explanation? Certainly. If if there's what's called easy money, which is low rate loans, or you know. That would increase wages for everybody. Increased wages, more comfortability, more dollars chasing fewer um, products, cars, houses, food, means that those prices would rise because there's more dollars chasing after it. They can charge a little more. And that's what inflation is. That's price inflation. So prices go up as more people have more money to spend for their daily needs. In the mid-'70s, Inflation was rampant because we were coming out of economic growth of the 60s. And by the time Richard Nixon was impeached, we had 18% Fed funds rate, which meant they were trying to drag money out of the economy. If you had a mortgage, you were paying 22% for a house. That means, you know, you're paying $2,000 more a month than you would if it was 2% mortgage you know, depending on the price of the house. So that's how the Fed traditionally would take money out of the economy by increasing the interest rate charged. 
Very good. And so it's interesting what you said, because when the feds apparently influx all these federal dollars, but none of it goes to the 90% of the American deal, you're actually, your GDP as a nation goes up. And so that's what we see on our nightly news. Oh, that's good. Our GDP went up. But it's not good if it's all being kept from the majority population. From 1980 to 2014, and again, this is economic growth in the United States, a tale of two countries, published back in December 6, 2016 by economists Emmanuel Size, Thomas Piketty, and Gabriel Zuckman. The average national income per adult grew by 61% in the United States, yet the average pre-tax income of the bottom 50% of individual income earners stagnated essentially did not move. That's after adjusting for inflation. In contrast, income skyrocketed at the top of the income distribution, rising 121% for the top 10%, 205% for the top 1%, and 636% for the top 0.001%. So basically, you go a whole generation in an economy that fails to deliver growth for half of its people. Here in that little piece that we heard earlier by the Business Insider from 2009 to 2012, the incomes of the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4%. Meanwhile, the top 1% incomes grew by 31.4% during the same time span. And all of it ties back to two things, the government disproportionately giving more aid to the banks and corporations. And then, of course, I guess the S&P, the stock market going up, gaining some 460% from 2009 to March of 2020, I guess. Uh, right. So this is a kind of an image-making thing. I, I can remember under the Obama administration, we also were told that there were these uh, 10 million jobs that were created under the Obama administration and only later found out that 90% of them were part-time. They were benefited jobs. They had no, uh, they, they were like poverty level, uh, they were unsustainable income jobs. Uh, yeah. and, and in fact, we lost over a million full-time benefited jobs. So you can't have this type of system in the United States unless you convince the American public that they're not getting hosed. And as you've indicated, it, it's a fleecing and they use these statistics in a way to camouflage the fleecing. So anyhow, the image making, if you will, gives the impression that our economy is doing one thing when people are actually feeling the pain and the discomfort that you've alluded to, which is a result of this stagnation of wealth and income. For 50% of our population. And I guess just lastly, I think it's just really important that it's not just a moral issue of poverty, it's that poverty actually means one or two decades shorter lifespans. I mean, there's there was a February 2016 Brookings Institute analysis that followed others that were looking at life expectancies for men who were among the top 10% of earners and compared those to those that were among the bottom 10% of earners, all born in 1950. And for men in the bottom 10% of earners, life expectancy was 14 years shorter than for those among the rich. So th- th- this is a not just a great fleecing, it's a criminal, a criminal fleecing. Anyhow, can you speak to that? Can you speak to the ways in which 
in your mind to really measure the welfare of our fellow citizens in the United States, whether it's improving or not improving? Well, you know, we, you, you mentioned earlier uh, GDP. Under Obama, he never had an annualized 3% GDP growth. He's the first eight-year president, two-term president, that, has not, that did not achieve that. Even Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Great Depression had GDP growth of 3% annualized. So, you know, Obama's administration loved to point out the fact that they created 10 million jobs, but most of those were in the gig economy. Mm-hmm. There were kids who were, became Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, delivering food for uh, Grubhub or whatever. They weren't full-time jobs. They weren't jobs that had benefits. They weren't jobs that anyone could build a life around. So saying GDP is, gives you a, a sense of you know, the uh, health of the economy is really not, it's, it's not germane anymore. Because you could have, like, like we have, growing GDP, but we have the quality of life of the, of the people, of most of the people, has not you know, improved slightly. Now, during this COVID pandemic, you know, it's it's cratered. Unemployment, 40 million people out of work. You know, we celebrate the fact that 1 million people came back to work last, last month. You know, it's a hollow victory. You know, people are suffering greatly. And uh, I really don't think the, the federal government certainly um, does not want to put out data that would actually indicate how bad things are. So what would you suggest, like, for instance, which is completely congruent with what you just said, the Business Insider piece that we've been reviewing a little bit tonight, that July 28, 2020, how billionaires got $637 billion richer during the pandemic. In that piece, it indicates by 2009, this is the you know beginning of, uh, or not at the beginning, but into the Obama administration, the world's high net wealth individuals had grown their share of global wealth by 19%. To 39 trillion, which meant that they recouped all their losses in a single year from the recession, basically. And in fact, the top 1% captured 95% of the income gains made between 2009 and 2012. That's a shocking number. And by 2020, the combined wealth of the billionaire class had increased over 80%. So if GDP is not a good industry, or it can be manipulated, or these Certain types of statistics can be manipulated to give you a false perspective of what what's really going on for the welfare of the majority population of our country. What is? Is it is it like seeing wealth disparity decrease uh, would be one, I guess? Or what would be the indices that and the policies that would push those uh, indices in the right direction, in your estimation? Well, narrowing the gap, certainly, between the haves and the have-nots would be one very good indicator. But... Instead of instead of taking from the rich and giving to the poor like Robin Hood, I would think picking up the bottom, mm-hmm. providing a living living wage to people who uh, who should have it. I mean, you know, if you if we're the richest country in the world, there should never be anybody that has to go go to bed hungry. No child, no parent, no grandparent, no one should have to go to bed hungry, and and that's. You know, monetarily, I'm very conservative. But when it comes to social things like this, I truly do believe that we should pick up the bottom. People on the bottom, they need a helping hand. We're a Christian uh, nation. We should reach down and pull them up. 
Yeah, I guess also along those lines, when you talk about in in your piece, getting back to your piece back in uh, January of 2016, you know, where the wealth had increased so much for the top 1% and also fell over a trillion dollars over that same period of time, which is that 2010 to 2015 period, it dropped some 41%. I guess the strategies that around taxation, for instance, and such, have you done any work and studied? It seems like we have a, a statutory tax system, which by law mandates and appears to be a little bit fairer than an actualization it really is once you start seeing what people actually really do pay of the wealthiest classes after their accountants are done with their work of negotiating loopholes and those types of things. Do you see that as a significant windfall to help out the public sector to return monies to the public sector that could be used in ways to ameliorate the suffering that you were alluding to? Certainly. Our tax system is so convoluted and really it benefits the rich. You know, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, they don't pay any taxes because of um, they'd rather pay accountants than pay taxes. So I, I have always advocated for a flat tax. No write-offs, no nothing, just 10% write-off off your earnings. You know, it, it would just, it would level the playing field. Absolutely. You can say under 35000 you don't pay anything. That's fine. I, I, I would agree with something like that. But our tax system is, it only benefits the rich. What amount of money would that generate? Do you have any idea? I really don't have an idea. But, you know, if you don't allow any write-offs, 10% of Jeff Bezos' profits over COVID would be three point, what, you know, $3.2 just on his profits. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit of a chunk of change for sure. Well, listen, the last thing then, if do you want to speculate then on, in your comments, you have suggested that there's a chance that we'll be experiencing an even greater transfer of wealth right now with the printing of more than $3 trillion. I just never really kind of understood that. In other words... The U.S. government can just print unlimited amount of dollars because of the dollar system, I guess. So you don't want to be a doomsday type of impressionist or whatever. But we do need honest interpretations of what's going on and, and where we're headed. Why would we expect any great amelioration under a Democratic-led government? It seems to me that the Democrats, as we just have kind of explicated in this show, under Obama and Biden versus Republicans, it's like... There's an old bumper sticker I used to really appreciate that said, under Republicans' administrations, man exploits man. Under Democrats, it's exactly the opposite. Man exploits (laughs) man. But what are prospects in your mind, and what should people be demanding of their representatives in Congress in order to maybe turn the tide during the present generation? Okay. First thing, and this is quite, quite funny, actually, the Fed printing money, they can't print $3.5 $3.5 trillion. It would take them five years to print that much money. That's a big <laughs> so one, yeah. They just create it digitally and put it in, in the banks. That's what they do now. You know, because the amount of money that we're going to need to print, we could never, we wouldn't have time to do it. Unless we, um, unless we came up with a trillion dollar bill, then we'd just have to print three of them. Or <laughs> There you go. Yeah, yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you, the second part of your question was, what do I think the the future, yeah, the, yeah, the future, and what should what should people of good conscience be a- advocating and t- to their elected officials 
towards promoting in order to reverse this horrific economic situation that's been going on since at least the 1980s, as we've documented tonight on this show. Right. Well, first off, I think it's unconscionable of Congress not to be in session right now and, and moving a bill through to help people out. It's nobody's fault that we're in this situation. Certainly, none of the 95% who are affected greatly by this, they should be in session, hammering it out, and getting it done. That being said, going forward, I'm here in New York City. I do not believe New York City will come back anytime soon. We've lost this city. Stores are closed. They still have boards up on the windows. It, it's just, it's a shell of its former self. Uh, you know, people, there's more empty apartments in New York now than ever as a result of this. And as a result of Democratic policies that, who run the city and the state. So I, I don't see a, a Joe Biden White House as being able to solve anything economically. I just think, from my standpoint, you know, the Republicans at least have more economic stability in their DNA to provide for our country to reopen and, and come back to some semblance of uh, order and growth. From where I stand, and, uh, you know, I could be biased because I'm in New York City and, uh, and I'm looking around at, uh, you know, all these places I used to go to on a daily basis, and maybe one or two of them are open and they're, all, they're not doing well either. They're, they're suffering. So I believe the only way we're really going to get any kind of growth and stability in our economy is with a Republican uh, win in November. Wow, what a scary prediction. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, Like yeah. I said, from where I stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let me just share with folks, we have had the great pleasure of visiting with Michael Gray. Michael, people want to follow your blog, of your work. How can they access your, your blog? It's at grayseconomy.com. That's G-R-A-Y-S-E-C-O-M-O-N-Y.com. Okay. And so how often do you do you update your blog? Every day, um, Monday through Friday. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a new posting. It's usually there by 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. It's It's been great having your insights shared and uh, your analysis of the economic conditions of the country. So we really appreciate that. We'll follow your blog. And uh, thanks again for being on Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you very much, Pedro. Okay, friend. So to end this show, we wanted to, we wanted to start revisiting the issue of becoming anti-racist, not simply being a non-racist, but looking at explicit and implicit forms of racism. So here's a clip of an interview from Muhammad Ali addressing why is Jesus white? in which he describes some of the implicit, unconscious side of, or more unconscious side of racism. See what you think. Things are getting much better, but I always wonder when I went to church on Sundays. I've always been one to, I'm not just a boxer. I do a lot of reading, a lot of studying. I ask questions. I go, I travel these countries and watch how their people live and I learn. And I always ask my mother, I said, Mother, how come is everything white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's Supper all white men? Angels are white. Pope, 
and um, Mary and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? <laughs> I said, oh, I know. If the white folks was in heaven too, then the black angels were in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. <laughs> I said, listen, you quit saying that, boy. I was always curious and I always wondered why I had to die to go to heaven. Why well, I couldn't have pretty cars and good money and nice homes now. Why do I have to wait till I die to get milk and honey? And I said, Mama, I don't want no milk and honey. I like steaks and, and I said, milk and honey is a laxative anyway. <laughs> They have a lot of bathrooms in heaven. So anyway, I was always curious. I always wondered why. You know, Tarzan is the king of the jungle in Africa. He was white. <laughs> white man. I saw this white man swinging around Africa with a diaper on, hollering. Oh! Do you all see Tarzan over here? Right. Tarzan? And all the Africans, so he's beating them up and breaking the lion's jaw. And here's Tarzan talking to the animals. And... The Africans been there for centuries, and he yet can't talk to the animals. Only Charles can talk to the animals. I always wonder why Miss America was always white. All the beautiful brown women in America, beautiful suntans, beautiful shapes, all type complexions, but she always was white. And Miss World was always white. And Miss Universe was always white. And then they got some stuff called White House cigars. White swan soap, king white soap, white cloud tissue paper, <clears throat> white rain hair rinse, white tornado flow wax. Everything was white. And the angel food cake was the white cake, and the devil food cake was the chocolate cake. <laughs> I said, Mama, why is everything white? I always wondered, you know, and, and the president lived in the White House. <laughs> and Mary had a little lamb, his feet as white as snow, and snow white. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck. And the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. I said, Mama, why don't they call it white male? They lie too. I, well, I was always curious. And then, and this is when I knew something was wrong. Won the Olympic gold medal in Rome, Italy. Olympic champion, the Russian standing right here, and the pole right here. Is Poland considered a communist country? Yeah. Yeah, I'm defeating America's so-called threats or enemies. And the flag is going dun 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 I'm standing so proud. Dun 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 And I don't whoop the world for America. Dun 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 I took my gold medal, thought I'd invented something. I said, man, I know I'm going to get my people freedom there. I'm the champion of the whole world, Olympic champion. I know I can eat downtown now. And I went downtown that day, had my big old medal on and went in the restaurants. At that time, black things weren't integrated. The black folks couldn't eat downtown. And I went downtown, I sat down, and I said, you know, a cup of coffee, a uh, hot dog. He said, the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. <laughs> I'm so mad. I said, I don't eat them either. Just give me a cup of hot I said, I'm the Olympic gold medal. One, three days ago, I fought for this country in Rome. I won the gold medal, and I'm going to eat. The manager heard her tell the manager, and she says, he said, well, I'm not the, I'm not the man. Now, he's got to go out. Anyway, I didn't raise no money. They put me out. 
that I had to leave that restaurant in my hometown where I went to church and served in their Christianity and fought and daddy fought in all the wars, just wanted to go mentally, couldn't eat downtown. I said, something's wrong. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting, which comes up next. You'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for nobody's happy hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety. Kyle.